Well, welcome, family, uh, to our online gathering here. Um, the keen-eyed among you will realize we're back in the theater. If you haven't realized that by now, maybe we should pay more attention to the sermons. Um, but yeah, we're doing this live again. We've been kind of pre-recording these for a lot of COVID, uh, which was great, but there is something special. I don't know. I feel like I'm really talking to you right now. I can get real close. Um, and, and there's people in the room. I'm not preaching to a blank wall. Um, these are all good things uh, and just really a taste of what it's going to be like to gather together again. Uh, hopefully that is something that you long for, uh, something that you desire to be with God's people, to be with his church. I know we've been praying towards that end that, yeah, our muscles of gathering together have atrophied in a lot of ways. Uh, we want to start building them up and anticipating them and being exciting for them again. Uh, yeah, so... That was my preamble. Sorry, uh, I'm an introvert. I'm not always excited to get together, but being in the theater again has uh, kind of stoked that fire in me. But today we're going to dive back into the book of Matthew, uh, this long voyage through the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at Jesus getting angry and flipping some tables, tables over. It's going to be great. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it. So if you have a Bible, phone, app, whatever it is, turn to Matthew 25, uh, verse 12. And really the question we're going to ask today is what makes Jesus angry or what brings about his righteous wrath? And the big idea that we're going to land on, I'll give you the answer right now so you can zone out for the rest, is that Jesus is angered when our practicality and pride stops the broken and the humble from coming to him and declaring his praises. So he's angered when our practicality and our pride becomes a barrier to worship specifically the worship of those that don't yet know him or are less mature in their faith. Let's pray, and then we'll read the actual passage together. <sighs> yeah, Jesus, thank you that you are a passionate God, that you care deeply about things, that you care deeply about injustice and wrongdoings, and that you stepped into the world to right those in small ways and big ways, and ultimately through the cross. Uh, and so as we dive into this text today, as we hear from your word, uh, may your spirit be at work in our hearts, convicting us, teaching us, comforting us, showing us how your truth impacts how we live. Uh, we want to be open to that this morning, Lord. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be looking at Matthew 21, 12. So turn, to me, turn there with me if you have it. It was like this. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So lots of stuff going on here. Confrontations with the religious leaders, children dancing in the streets, uh, buying and selling and money changers and merchants. And there's lots going on. Uh, so we've got to set the stage to really get the, a full picture here uh, and understand this. And so this takes place in the Jewish temple uh, in Jerusalem. You know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus ride in on Palm Sunday on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. So we know he's there. Uh, we know there's lots of stuff going on. Everybody's coming to Jerusalem 
for big festivals and coming to the temple for sacrificial rites and different things. And this is where Jesus enters into this. And the temple was set up. You know, we don't have any picture of it. We don't have a lot of modern-day temples. The Jewish temple had very strict guidelines that God laid out in all the books of the Old Testament that you skip over, um, like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and different stuff. Uh, But it had different layers. And so the very inner layers, the Holy of Holies, uh, was the place that God was said to dwell. Uh, very set-apart, sanctified place. No one really ever entered there except the high priest on some very special occasions. Uh, and then outside that layer is the court of the priests. You guessed it, that's where only the priests could go. Uh, the priests were a set-apart sect or people within the Jewish culture. Uh, they were sanctified and, and holy. They had to go through certain things to make sure they weren't unclean. And then outside that, you had the court of the Israelites, and that's where any ritually pure Jewish males could go. So they had followed uh, all those rites uh, to make sure they'd cleanse their sin. Uh, Then the males could go into that place and worship. And then outside that court was the court of the women, and that's where all Israelites could go. Anybody that was a Jew could enter that place. Man, this this would get canceled so fast. Court of the women, only male allowed in one place. Like, this would be real bad today, but um, (laughs) that's not what this is about. So we had the court of the women where all the Jews could enter. And then finally, we had the court of the Gentiles. So a Gentile was anybody that wasn't Jewish. And that's where this story takes place today. And we see in this picture, like these kind of levels of holiness. You can picture super holy in the middle, and it kind of goes out, and less and less clean people, is how the Jewish people would describe it, are allowed in. And it really, the picture I get is it gets more noisy and crowded and chaotic the further out you go from this quiet, peaceful center. We need to ask, why were there even money changers in the court? Like, shouldn't that be at a bank for that or down the road, somewhere else? Uh, And they're fulfilling a function here. Money changers were necessary to part of worship at the temple. So to sacrifice and to tithe at the temple, just like we tithe and give part of our money as an offering to Jesus here at West Village, the temple had a tax that uh, fulfilled that role of tithe. And they only accepted it in a certain type of currency. And because Jews are coming from all over the world, everybody had different coins with their various denominations and stuff. So they had to be translated or transferred into the, the proper coinage. So these money changers, they have a legit purpose. They know it's, they're there for a reason. So that's one thing. We see money changers. The other thing we see buying and selling. Why would there be buying and selling? This is a temple. It's not a grocery store. It's not a market. Uh, what's going on here? If you're familiar with the Jewish sacrificial system uh, where they atone for their sins by sacrificing pure animals in their place, uh, ultimately, that foreshadows Jesus being sacrificed in our place. Uh, but as part of their worship, they needed to come and they needed to atone for their sins through everything God laid out for them. And they needed animals to do that, uh, to stand in their place as punishment. But they're traveling. They're traveling far. You don't want to be bringing some doves or a goat with you on a long voyage. It's hard enough putting four kids in a car on a long voyage, managing having four goats in a car. It's just, it's not going to work. Um, actually, the goats may be better behaved than my kids, but... Um, less screaming, less screaming for sure. But, so they come to the temple and, and there they could exchange their coins for all the things they needed to do sacrifice, animals and wood and oil, all those things. So it, it was a store for these things. And so again, fulfilling a purpose. And the outer courts became this giant marketplace uh, where you could buy everything you needed, um, but it's noisy, right? You can imagine the buyers and the sellers all haggling and vying for each other's attention. Uh, there's a chaotic picture here. Kids running in and out. We see these kids coming later. Um, animals baying and crying and doves pooping everywhere. Like, it's, it's a mess. And it's into this chaos that Jesus walks in and he starts flipping tables over. 
And I love this picture of Jesus. I want to walk into the lobby and flip over the coffee table. Luckily, we don't have one today. And if I did that to Nathan's computer table, I might get in trouble. Um, but I, yeah, I just love this picture of Jesus because he's not the meek and mild Jesus we see all the time. Also, like this would make a great slow-mo shot in an action movie. Those coins flying everywhere. It'd be great. Um, but we know, we just looked. These people are serving an actual purpose, right? They're not just here gouging people for money. They're actually enabling the practices and rites of Jewish worship to happen. So why is Jesus upset by this? What's he angry about? What would cause him to come into this and cause such a scene and be so disruptive? If we look back to our text today in verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So the first thing we want to look at is this phrase, den of robbers. Probably, you know, we're thinking of like Aladdin, King, Prince of Thea, all these different things like dens of robbers and bad guys and pirates. Um, it's not really what this phrase is capturing here. And it can have two kind of connotations or meanings. So <clears throat> first, um, we already talked about there's nothing wrong with what they're doing here. Um, but it's really Jesus' concern where they're doing it. Why are they doing this in the temple courts? Uh, they're distracting people from worship. They've turned this place of peace into a place of chaos, like I said. Uh, And they could very well have been gouging people on prices, and that connotation of robbers comes because they're there, they have a captive audience, and so they're going to make a profit on it. And rightfully, that upsets Jesus. So that's one thing he's very upset about. And the other thing is, we're not familiar with Greek, probably, uh, but this phrase, den of robbers, also had this connotation of like a nationalist rebel, like someone who's like, an Israel pride flag. He's all about Israel being number one. Uh, And the den of robbers had that connotation in the day. And so the Jewish people, they were fiercely protective of their national identity. They still are today. A small nation, they deeply believe that they are God's chosen people, and they protect that fiercely and vigorously. And any place they can proclaim that loudly, they will. And so the outer courts started to become... The Gentile courts, which is ironic in itself, became this place of Jewish national identity. Uh, And so you hear all this, you see stuff going on, but really, if you're like me, you're like, so what, Matt? What's the point? That was a nice little history lesson, but I don't think West Village is going to be setting up a market in the lobby or, you know, starting our own political party or anything like that. How does this really impact us right now? How does this relate to us right now? Like most things in the scriptures, like most things Jesus challenges us on, it comes down to our basic motivations. Do we care more about money or worship? Do we care more about, or are we more passionate about our political convictions or the kingdom of God? And we're going to dive deeper into these implications in a little bit here. Um, But I want to actually look at the positive thing that Jesus says first before we dive into the implications of these negative things. And so in verse 13 again, he says, my house should be a house of prayer. We don't want a den of robbers. We want a house of prayer. So if you think through that temple layout that we walked through with the various courts, um, you know, prayer and worship and ritual sacrifice would have happened in various layers. Um, but really, because this chaotic Gentile court, it makes... Prayer, praising God, much harder, and at least half the temple, right? You've basically taken away the function of half of it because the Gentile court is chaotic. But even the next level in the court of the women 
It's loud. You got some really party loud neighbors next door, right? It's hard to pray uh, when there's goats making noise and people yelling and haggling. So the temple has been changed from this place of worship and communion with God into a community center of commerce and Jewish nationalism. And this misplaced use of the temple greatly angers and upsets Jesus. This is what triggers him. This is what he's fighting against. He wants people to be able to purely worship the Father and come to him in prayer, free of distraction, free of other idolatries, identities, ideologies that the Jewish nation was pitching at the time. And really importantly in this, he wants the Gentiles to have a place to meet and worship God. They've, they're excluded from so many levels of Jewish worship, but they have this core. They have this one place where they can come and learn more. But it's just full of noisy Jewish people buying and selling and exchanging coins. And we know that God never wanted his people to become inward focused, but instead desired a people that were a shining light to the world. He wanted the nations to come to him. That's why there is a court of the Gentiles and hear his good news. That's not what's happening here. It's the same way that Jesus wants a church whose worship is open to all, a church who invites a broken world to come in and participate with us in singing praise to God and bowing before him in worship, right? The purpose of God's church is to bring him glory and what gives him glory more than us bowing down and proclaiming his goodness, right? Saying that he is worthy of all. But at the heart of this passage, there's a question being asked and it's who is Jesus? Like who has the right to cause this scene in the temple? Who has the right to enter, you know, even though it's being used as a market, it's still a sanctified holy place. It still is a place of prominence and it's the center of of Jerusalem and, and Jewish culture in general. And so this entry in and anger is actually proclaiming something about Jesus. Just like when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey with the palm branches, proclaimed him as king. Those are all symbols and actions of him saying, I am king. So does entering into the temple this way because we know that the temple is described as God's house. It's a place where his presence dwells on earth. And he has dominion and authority over it. That's why it's laid out in very specific ways uh, to his plans and his designs. And Jesus' actions as he comes in here, he's declaring that I have authority in this house. I get to choose what is right and wrong in this house. I get to say what its purpose is. And so one who would have authority in God's house is God. And the Jewish people actually had this expectation that their savior would come and be one to cleanse the temple. So he's also speaking to that desire in them and up to this point, Jesus is pretty careful about who he makes his claims to about, you know, these really direct claims that he is God. Typically, they're saved for his inner disciples and people that have followed him. But this act of coming into this public square that's just teeming with people and proclaiming, I have authority here, is this bold act of saying, I am God to all people. As he gets closer to the cross, he does that more. And I I really love this picture of Jesus, this angry yet compassionate, this livid yet loving God. It's so different than that that 
hippie, peace and love Jesus that, you know, our culture portrays a lot, that a lot of us are actually attracted to, right? We think that's the Jesus that we want, um, but it's not the Jesus that I want. But more importantly than that, it's not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. The Jesus we see here and all throughout the Gospels is someone who, who hates injustice and sin. And he hates the wrongdoings, and he just can't stand that, right? But he deeply cares about people having right relationship with him. But he won't put aside his passion for justice for the sake of our feelings or our comfort, right? And it's that last bit that we don't like. We want to be comfortable. We want to feel good. And so that's where hippie peace and love Jesus is attractive to us. But that's not the Jesus we get here. We get a Jesus who cannot stand when the religious or the religious elite leadership get in the way of people coming to him. This is what angers Jesus the most all throughout the scriptures, right? When these prideful religious church people become a barrier to people meeting with him. So he comes in and he causes a scene. He comes in and he proclaims that he is God and that his house will be dedicated to prayer. He's the one with all the authority. So the question I asked myself and I wanted us to, to think through today is, is what does this look like? In our context, context, what does this look like for West Village? You know, what really upsets Jesus about our approach to worship? Where have we let our desires, our preferences override Jesus's desires and Jesus's preferences? And I'm going to list a few things here, as I'm prone to do. I like lists. Um, and I want us to hear this first, that the things I'm going to say aren't necessarily bad. Just like the money changers and the buying and the selling aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but they are misplaced in our worship at times, where they can cause our worship to be impure, or they cause barriers to those that don't know Jesus to come to worship. And these are very gathering-centered. Um, I was really, as I thought through this lens, I was thinking a lot about coming to the theater together and gathering. And obviously, we haven't done that um, in quite a while. And COVID has many negatives, and we need to take some positives out of it at times. So as we think through these things, COVID has allowed us to step back. And as we come back to gather again, maybe we can write some of these things, or at least think through, th- through them and be mindful of them. So I separated them into two categories. The little things, the little things that are little barriers, if you will, and really it's just me being nitpicky, and then some big things. So let's go into them. Um, first one, I just said lobby. Are we, is our lobby more concerned with goods and information or preparing us for, for worship? And we ask these questions already at West Village, but we need to ask them again. We are pretty protective of who we let into the to the lobby from selling books and different things. We, we sell our own books below cost, um, which makes us feel better about selling things out there. Um, maybe, maybe we shall, still shouldn't. I don't know. These are questions I'm still thinking through and I still want to work through. Um, but do we walk into that lobby and make sure it's a place that leads us to worship? We don't want to be bombarded with information and purchasing things. It's, a, it's hard enough. We walk into a theater. It's trying to sell us popcorn and goodies and, and movies and all these things. So how can we as God's people uh, transform that space that kind of prepares us to come in, into worship? That's our lobby. You need to think through that. Uh, and some of us, we're not going to have the opportunities to do that. 
But if you are just, you're not in leadership at West Village, you're not making those decisions and you feel like you could check out, we want to hear your voices. Maybe God has given you a prophetic gift. And as we come and gather together again, you can say, man, we used to do this and maybe we should strip that away because it distracts me or others from entering fully into worshiping Jesus. As that sets my mind running in the wrong path before I come in and hear from his word and praise him in song. So that's our lobby. Think through our space that we create as we gather together. The next one is cliques. So I'm sure you've walked in the West Village and you see people gathered up and they're talking together, they're catching up about their week. And the picture I got here, there's nothing wrong with that. We want the church to love being together. We want them to feel like a family. Uh, But so often we come in and there's four people and they're standing in a circle. And that circle is closed. And that's the picture that we don't want. I want to come into the lobby and see 20 half circles of people, if you will. Uh, People that are just, they're talking, but they're on alert. Who's coming in? Who am I excited to see? Who do I get to welcome in? Who looks nervous for walking in the first time? How can I invite them in to one, fellowship, and two, preparing their hearts for worship, preparing their hearts to come to Jesus? Are we aware of the outsiders as we catch up with our family in the lobby? doesn't necessarily have to happen just here. This can happen in our CGs. Wherever we gather together as the church, we need to be aware. In the back of our minds at all times, man, where's an opportunity to invite someone into God's family, to fellowship, to communion together? It's hard. It's really hard to do. We love the people that we know well. We have that same love and passion for those that do not yet know Jesus or are new to our family. Third little thing. Insider language. We got lots here. We got like DNAs and CGs and the gospel and all these like acronyms and language that we use at West Village. And there's good things to that. Uh, Helps create a culture, helps capture ideas simply and repeatedly so we can all kind of be on the same page. That's great. Um, But does our language naturally exclude people? As God's people, we need to be aware of that. We need to not create that barrier as they come in the door to meet Jesus. And so we need to explain often a DNA group. What does that mean? They did it in the announcements. Uh, What is a CG? It's a community group. It's a group of people trying to be a family and missionary servants together. We need to stop and explain those things. Even though it feels repetitive, it's an act of love to those that don't know our culture and our language. So three little things, um, three practical little things that we can do. And then some big things. Like These are big, more ideas than practical things that I saw as barriers to worship for people that can cause our worship to be impure or off-putting to others. And the first one is race. There's sure a lot of white people at West Village. I'll say that. And uh, we make up, we look like our city, obviously. And there's some things we can do and some things we can't do about that. Um, But as different races and cultures and ethnicities come into our midst, are we, are we aware of the things that we do to make them uncomfortable? Are we aware of how we've been shaped by our culture and how our, what we value may be something that someone else doesn't? And are those getting in the way? And so this is asking people that are, you know, they look different, they act different, they talk different than us, asking them, yeah, how did you come in? Like, did you have a true worshipful experience as you came in and heard from the word and praised together? 
Maybe there's something we can learn from them, ask them. We don't want to create those barriers, right? And a lot of the time, it's just having that posture of openness and willingness to hear and learn. You don't need to make grand, you know, sweeping gestures uh, or anything like that. So race. Second one is education. You know, a lot of, like, I say Old Testament, New Testament. What's a testament? Who even knows what that is sometimes? Uh, so we need to make sure that as we teach and preach and sing all these things, there's a level of assumed knowledge in everything that we do. And we can't forget to explain the basics. A lot of some people complain that we, one, go through books for five years, but two, we have these recaps at the beginning where we take time and I explain to you what the temple is. Some people are like, well, I know what the temple is. You screwed that part up, Matt. It's actually more complex than that. Um, <laughs> the point of that is, Andrew's singing this right now. No, that's not true. There's more than that. Um, but we do it on purpose, right? We want to create an environment where if you knew nothing about the Bible, you could come in and the Spirit could move in your life. That you wouldn't get caught up on things you didn't understand. And so we need to think through assumed knowledge in our context. So that anybody can walk in off the street or at any level of maturity in their faith can come and hear from Jesus through his word. The Spirit can work. And finally, wealth. Um, you know, I'm happy that you all shower before you come and there's not a lot of stinky people here. Um, but that is actually like this simple little thing. But we are a wealthy church. We live in an upper middle class part of the city and there's a great amount of money that we have. You might not feel like that. We all think we're poor and living paycheck to paycheck. But, you know, are the poor welcome in our gathering? We meet in a fancy movie theater. We all drive here. Uh, we dress up somewhat nicely. We have nice coffee and scones when we gather together. Those things are all great, and we expect them. But does our wealth, is it off-putting to people? Are they scared to come here because they feel like they don't measure up? Is that a barrier to worship? Do people feel like they need to hit a certain level before they can be welcome here? We need to ask ourselves those questions. So as I said, these things are not necessarily bad, but they can stop us from fully entering into worship, and more importantly, they become these barriers. Jesus wants people to come to him. So we need to be on guard so that our worship can be pure and pleasing to Jesus. How do we make sure this happens, though? What are some of the attitudes we need to have in our hearts? And it really comes down to how we approach him, how we come to worship, some of the things going on in our hearts. And the next two groups we see in the story show us these key attitudes. Uh, And the first one we see, the lame and the blind. So after Jesus clears the temple, the lame and the blind come to him for healing. And they approach as these broken people. So the distraction of the outer courts is cleared away and it allows the blind and the lame to come. And it's pure worship that is free from distraction allows the broken to approach Jesus, right? Those barriers have been removed. They can come in just as they are. And, and the trick here is some of us, it's easy to think, well, what can I do to remove broken barriers so broken can come in? But it's actually realizing that you're one of the broken too. And it's this recognition that allow, of our brokenness that allows us to worship Jesus fully. And if you feel like your sin is not that big of a deal, you need to stop right now. And ask the Spirit to reveal the vastness of your depravity. 
kind of the fullness of your corruption, you are not a good person. You cannot achieve your own salvation. You cannot save yourself. And as Christians, we don't want to dwell in this place of the crushing nature of our sin and the completeness of it and how it you know, oozes through all everything we do. But we need to start there. We need to remember all that we've been saved from. And the more we understand the depths of our sin, the more we can see how far we are away from God, especially us church people that sit here and we look so good on the outside, we need to recognize this because it's from that place that we can worship. We can praise God so much more richly when we realize how far away we were from him and yet he drew us near can think of all the things that he saved us from. This is amazing. This is an amazing part. Some of us run away from our brokenness and it disgusts us and there is an element of that. But it's this kind of recognition and embrace of it that allows us to worship Jesus fully. So the first step, the first approach to Jesus is come as one who is broken. Come for healing. And the next is look at the little children. These kids running through the courts. And they approach Jesus with humility. Children are naturally humble, right? They don't have a lot of pride. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have authority. They're all throughout the scriptures, these pictures of humble people. And they constantly get praised for it. And this final section gives us this another little interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus. I'll read it again. Verse 15 and 16 says, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you ever read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? We see here the humble, the humble children perceiving truth better than the smart know-it-alls. Better than the religious teacher, these little children captured. They say, Hosanna, praises to the son of David, praises to our Savior, praises to God. They recognize what's going on. And the religious elite missed it. The leaders in the temple, the teachers of the law, the pastors, the elders, they missed it. Because they are more concerned with their own power, their own pride, and their own knowledge. So we need to ask, which one are you? Are you the prideful know-it-all who's constantly ignoring the power of Jesus because you think you know better? Were you the humble child who joyfully sings Jesus' praise in response to all that he has done, response to his great healing power for those who are broken? And I confess uh, that more often than not, I'm that prideful know-it-all. Uh, I regularly look through this lens of, okay, the Bible lays out these standards. This is what God wants. Don't see that in your life. Don't see that in this place. Don't see that here. And I judge. Uh, I've been doing that for years and years and years. Part of it is a prophetic gift that didn't know how to work itself out in me. And part of it is just this arrogance that I think I know better. And so I'd be bothered by, you know, people's actions or churches. Well, you're doing it wrong. You don't have community groups. You're not being missional, whatever it is. And I'd so often miss what Jesus was actually doing. And this has been a part of my story for a long time. And God, through his grace, has been growing me in it over the years. And one of the first things he taught me in it, I thought I'd share 
uh, is that it's really easy to throw stones from the outside. It's really easy to not be part of a community group and say, look at them, they're a clique, or they're, they're screwed up, they're not on mission, I'm going to go be on mission by myself, or look at that church, they're doing this wrong, or look at that family, look at the fruit in their life. We sit outside, and we don't participate, and we throw stones. But I encourage you, if something is bothering your religious sensibilities, if you're up on your high horse, get off. Humble yourself and enter in. Move from being an outsider to being an insider, to participating in what God is doing, even though it might be messy and ugly and heretical at times. Go be involved. Go be involved. Gently bring truth where it's needed. But when we move from outside to inside, we get to actually see what the Spirit is doing. We get to look past some of the human flaws and celebrate God at work. And Jesus desires this from us, right? He desires this brokenness and this humility. And these attitudes would help guard our worship against you know, the practicality of, well, we'll just set up in the lobby or the temple courts. It's easier. It's convenient. And this pride that we know what is best. We know how worship should be. We're just going to protect our part of worship and not think of others. And it distorts it so that we start worshiping what we want and not what Jesus wants. And so as we conclude, there's two lenses I want us to view the implications of this passage through. First, the first lens is collectively, as a church, as an expression of Jesus' church, uh, we call ourselves West Village, we need to ask, do we protect our times of worship so they're free from distraction and allow us, but also outsiders, to best worship Jesus and declare him as Lord? Do we step back and look at our times of worship and make sure they make much of Jesus and not much of us. And as a leader, I confess that a lot of my thinking around worship is more about what I want than about what Jesus wants. And this needs to change. <clears throat> we need to ask those questions often. And the second lens is personally. Do we come to Jesus as broken and humble people? Do we long for times of worship because we are so broken that we need Jesus, that we yearn for him as a thirsty person longs for a drink. Is that us? Do we humble ourselves, admitting that we do not know what is best and asking the Spirit where we can join in and celebrate what he was doing? And if we remain in our religious pride, then really all Jesus has for us is his righteous anger. But if we embrace our brokenness and humble ourselves, then we can be healed like the blind and the lame and we can shout our praises to him like these little kids. And that's a beautiful picture, and that's what I want for all of us. So let's pray, and then worship together. Hmm. Jesus, thank you that despite the religious pride in this story and the arrogance, the selfishness, you came in and you created space for the broken and the humble to come to you and worship. So Spirit, if we need that, come in, kick down the tables in our lives, in our hearts, in our places of worship. Clear away anything that is not of you, anything that gets in the way of coming to you. Let us be a people defined by your praise, defined by our brokenness and our humility. Let us be an inviting place for our world that is so hurting 
to come in and receive your healing and to bow down and worship. Help us with these things, Spirit. We're so blind and lame. We can't see what we put in the way. We need your help. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.